here. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And Merry Christmas. Like Spence said before, it's uh, really great to see you all. Welcome if you're uh, maybe family or one of our neighbors or, uh, you know, otherwise we're invited here by somebody. We're uh, grateful to, to have you. So thanks for visiting today on this Christmas morning. Um, we are going to take a one-week break from our uh, normally scheduled uh, sermon series, which is the Gospel of John right now, uh, for a short Christmas reflection on part of the Gospel of Luke's birth narrative. So we're kind of jumping uh, Gospels here, the Gospel of Luke today. Um, and I, I chose this story because, one, I've never preached it, or this segment of, of the birth narrative, and it's an often skipped over part um, of the story between when the angels announce Mary's conception of Jesus and uh, Mary's what we call her Magnificat, uh, the, the, her song of praise for what God had done in her and what he was going to do through her yet unborn son Jesus. But in between those two things in Luke, uh, she gets up and rushes off to see Elizabeth, uh, which is her relative. Uh, some translations say cousin. We don't know if they were first cousins or second cousins or more distant relatives, uh, but somehow they were family and apparently were close because Mary couldn't wait to talk with her about what had happened to her. And so basically, uh, it's a, this short little uh, story about two women talking about how they had both conceived miraculously. Uh, Elizabeth also was barren, uh, but God allowed her to conceive as well. Mary was a virgin, so they both had these amaz- amazing pregnancy stories, but who were both ecstatic over what had happened, and even more so about what their pregnancies meant uh, theologically, even if they weren't fully realizing it yet, and they, they weren't, they were connecting all the dots, but they were connecting some. God was beginning to say quite clearly that he was up to something uh, that was going to stir the very foundations of the earth, uh, that was fulfilling all of the Old Testament. It was uh, putting fissures in the cracks uh, of the foundation of sin and death, and it was beginning uh, with the arrival of this child, this Christ child, uh, who is, at this point in the story isn't yet born. All right, so uh, today's sermon is called, Why Am I So Favored? Uh, that's something Elizabeth says here uh, in, in the paragraph. Let me just read it in full to begin. Luke 1, 39 to 45, let's all be on screen. If you want to pick up a Bible, feel free to flip there if you'd like, but um, we'll read this uh, in full uh, to begin. Luke 1, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed uh, that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. All right, so a few gospel reflections from this passage today. I want to start with the oddities because uh, it's in the oddities that we usually find Jesus, and Jesus is always the main point of any passage, even when he's uh, not born yet. Uh, so, uh, but the passage is essentially, it has to do with Elizabeth's uh, unborn son, her own unborn son, John the Baptist. She's about six months ahead of Mary in her pregnancy, uh, bearing who would become John the Baptist. And, and it, it, it's a story about John the Baptist leaping inside her womb when Mary says hello, which is not something that usually happens. And we see Elizabeth's surprise here, which indicates it was more than just the baby's moving. It was one of those more than just the baby's moving, come, come feel moments. This was something more than that because she, she's surprised and she, and she uh, mentions it, as does Luke, uh, the author, of course. Um, and then it says she was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
uh, which also is odd based on what we know about how the Spirit works elsewhere in the Bible and when he works uh, elsewhere in the Bible. It's a very legitimate question here to ask, why did she receive the Spirit here exactly? What just happened or what happened to her uh, for her to receive the Holy Spirit of God? It's almost like we like, missed something. It, it it's not, wouldn't be weird at this point to go back and read it again, as if, like, what did we miss um, based on what we know about the Spirit elsewhere? Um, and, and the point here is not to make Elizabeth's experience then a paradigm of all future movings of the Spirit, but to teach us theology uh, in its own right, uh, in its own unique way. And, and in order to see it, it's helpful to remember that Jesus actually is in this passage, right? Uh, he actually is inside Mary uh, at, at this point. Sometimes that's easy to forget. And so in order to understand this passage properly, we need to remember that Mary, as a Christ-bearer, is here a Christ-figure. And when we do that, we see that this isn't just about uh, two women talking about their pregnancies. This is a story primarily about Jesus and what his ministry would look like later in the story. That is, as one who would run, uh, who would run to us, run out of the city of heaven to the small, no-name towns of our lives and bring good news to us uh, to make us leap for joy ourselves uh, at the sound of his, uh, his voice speaking grace to us. And uh, some of you actually might remember this, but the Old Testament basically ends with this verse right here. Uh, I believe Malachi 4 has five verses in it, or six maybe, so it's not quite the very last verse, but this is the final prophecy, the final words of the Old Testament that come right before Jesus' birth that serve as a prophecy of him, uh, and it goes like this. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So maybe in this you heard uh, some of the lyrics of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, where, it's a, where that song says, Risen with healing in his wings. It comes right from this prophecy here in Malachi 4. But the idea being that Jesus is the son of righteousness. Uh, God elsewhere in the Bible is, is likened to the sun itself coming up every morning. Uh, and Jesus here is a special kind of son. He is the son who brings righteousness. He's the son who brings healing, a son who brings washing, a son who brings salvation. Um, but also notice that there's a reference here to leaping, leaping with joy, like uh, the prophet says, like calves from a stall, which is the same word used in Luke 1. This is not a coincidence. This is basically like bookending the silent era, the in-between era between the Testaments. You have the Old Testament ending with the prophecy of, of leaping with joy, and then you have Luke 1 coming with this, uh, this um, harbinger really uh, textually uh, of a time when leaping would come with joy at the sound of of Christ's voice Um, and actually here when you have John the Baptist leaping uh, one thing I don't have time for today to really dive too deep into but I'll just mention it as an aside biblically wombs are actually symbolic for tombs uh, in the Bible and so even like here in Luke 1 you have this idea of God bringing Uh, life from death or life from barrenness. There's a lot of barren women in the Old Testament. You may be aware of that if you've read it before. It's a common repeated theme for a reason because God brings life uh, in a way that only he is able from places of death. Uh, And it starts with barren wombs, but later it's with actual tombs. Uh, There's a a likening there, a, a symbolic connection that I don't have time to go into too deep, but I think that is, there's a nod to that here 
how this child, this yet unborn child, how, how Jesus' words would one day stir the dead. It would, it would speak into tombs and the dead would start to move around and stir from their sleep and wake up and it would even be called from their tombs. Uh, if you've been here for our series in John, maybe you remember from John 11 how Lazarus was dead for three or four days and Jesus spoke into the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. Um, John the Baptist here, in his leaping, in his like, response to Jesus' words through Mary's words, uh, stir him in the tomb that is Elizabeth's womb. All right, so, but the deeper magic here, I think, in the passage is when we realize that Mary is the active one in this passage as the Christ figure. She is the active one, and Elizabeth is the passive one, the receptive one. And that in Mary's haste, in her hurry to go see Elizabeth, uh, there was some kind of suffering that probably came with that, whether it was blistered feet or whether it was just her hurting lungs or whether it was lost time from whatever else she was going to do that day. There was something she gave up. There was some kind of suffering that came with Mary's haste running to see her relative. Um, and that's really where the theology pops here. Uh, this is why, and this is why Elizabeth's receiving of the Spirit in this manner. So to go back to my question that I kind of started with, like why is Elizabeth receiving the Spirit here? This explains it. This is, this is where the theology pops and why Elizabeth receiving here on the heels of Mary's active running towards her uh, starts to matter and become so important to us. Elizabeth's figurative salvation came at the hands of another's work or the feet of another's haste running and also at the, at the, uh, at the basis of another's suffering. Uh, not our religiously calloused hands, our good works, our best intentions, or our self-denial. All right, so the, uh, the, the good news for us here is that like Elizabeth didn't, didn't meet Mary halfway, so do you not meet God halfway when it comes to salvation. That's not Christianity. Christianity's not, meet me in the middle, I'll give you a little if you promise to give me back some. Christianity is about 100% God giving and us 100% passively receiving as the one in the, in the womb, as the one in the tomb, as Elizabeth in the home, way out in the country. We'd bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation. Instead, the promise and the, the beauty of Christmas, and again, even Jesus in utero here, even Jesus before he's born, you have him signifying this. You have him through Mary um, being the runner, being the sufferer, being the mover uh, when he comes to reach us in the faraway towns that we, are, that we live in, far away from Eden, far away from God, far away from the city of, of, of God. And he runs out to those small villages where we find ourselves uh, in life to reach us and to save us and to heal us. And that's really uh, what's great about, I think, this short little passage here is that uh, Elizabeth knows this. This is what's so cool. And again, maybe not connecting all the dots, but she, she is a woman who understands grace. Elizabeth is a woman who knows what little she brings to the table. And so this is why in verse 43 she says, Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
Why me? This is the question that comes from a true experience of grace. If you're a Christian in the room, all of you have asked some form of this question at some point in your life. And uh, maybe not every day, but uh, you've asked it. Uh, whether it's these exact words or some version of this, uh, th- this, this is what grace just begs to be asked. Why me? It makes no sense. Why not others? It doesn't add up. You actually see this theme in, in many other figures in the Bible, like Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9, who says to David when David shows him kindness, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Uh, or Moses uh, when he says to God, who am I that, that the Lord should uh, send me to go to Pharaoh? And there are many others. But, but again, when we understand our sin, our, the darkness inside, our propensity to rebel and to disbelieve, uh, our unworthiness mixed all together with the grace and love that God brings to us actively and without any kind of restraint or partiality or response to anything we've done, uh, the question here again is begged. Uh, that that grace is the point. Why me? The, the question it produces is why am I so favored? And, and this Jesus then inside Mary, uh, even while unborn, was a harbinger or a sign of this era that the new era, the New Testament, would be ruled by grace, not law. Grace, not the command. Grace, not us and our obedience or our responsibility. The new era would be completely redefined by one-way, relentless, sacrificial love from God to us. Because close to the question of why am I so favored is, what have I done to deserve this? I don't, if I look back on my life, like what have I done to be shown such kindness? This again is the question of, of the sinner who's being shown kindness, who doesn't, who knows, he, he, he or she knows what they bring to the table and they know it's nothing. So the question there is left hanging. They don't really know. We, we don't have an answer to that. Um, other than nothing, I guess that is the answer. But the, the answer might be, I don't really know. But if we really think about it, um, the ultimate answer to the question of what have I done to deserve the love of God is nothing. Uh, And again, Elizabeth is a sign of this. Elizabeth is a picture. Elizabeth is like what a Christian, to whatever degree we understand Christians uh, living in this era. Christians weren't called Christians until after Jesus rose from the dead, but this is like a kind of a pre-Christian Christian. Christian. And there are many in the Old Testament too who kind of exuded uh, Christian-like attributes like faith and belief and humility uh, Elizabeth is doing this here in, in asking this question. So, so in this story then, um, if, if there's anything to mimic, if there's uh, anything to see as an example uh, in Mary and Elizabeth, it's the shock that they both have over why they were chosen. Uh, it's the humility that they exude. It's belief and trust in God. Actually, Elizabeth says at the end, blessed are you who believed in God not worked for God, not tried to impress him. Uh, Elizabeth and Mary have done nothing to deserve this. They are not good women. God isn't saying, I'm looking at good women. I'm going to select for this, uh, for this particular task. He's looking at ones that just are chosen for no reason whatsoever other than love, other than they just are. Uh, you know, it's the same. We say, I say up here a lot uh, because I'm a, mar- a married man. Like, it's ex- exactly like, 
my relationship with my wife. And many, if, if you're married, or a friendship too could, could add this as well, of course. But like, I love Aletha because I just do. There's nothing, you know, and she loves me because she just does. Like there's no, if you're looking for a reason, there is no reason. Like if I ask why am I loved by her, I've done nothing. And, and so again, um, if we think we have an answer for that that's other than nothing or love, I, I, I hope this passage challenges you and humbles you and stops your mouth from talking. Romans 3 says, The law stops us from talking because we've brought nothing to God. It, it, it's, it, it stops our defense. We have nothing to say other than open hands that we bring to him to receive his, his love. And so if, if there's anything to mimic here, I would, um, I would leave you all with that, uh, to mimic the shock that they are chosen, the shock um, that, they, that they have been favored by God um, and the joy they have over the arrival of the Son of God into the world who again would himself run hastily into the far-from-God towns of our hearts to bring good news and to suffer for us and to show us undeserved favor when he would die on a cross for our sins. And so, um, so there's two women here. I'll end with this, two women. There's Mary and Elizabeth. Mary, what, what I want for you guys and myself to see today is to see the Christ in her. Not just physically in her, but spiritually in her. She is a Christ figure in her suffering, ridden, running to see her relative. And the Bible says that because God became man, we are the relative of Jesus. We're like a brother. We're like a sister. I became like us in order to save us, right? So a lot of similarities there as well. But to see in Mary the one-way love of God and, and to receive. In Elizabeth... Uh, this Christmas, uh, I would say consider uh, pausing, whether it's right now as I say this or later today, uh, sometime this week, pause to ask the question of Elizabeth, which is, why me? Why am I so favored? There are a few things that, could, that, are, that are as good for your soul to ask that question and to seriously think about it. Why me? Why am I so favored by God? Um, these types of questions are good for us and glorify God because the only answer to that question, if we're really thinking about it, with Bible in hand, letting the Bible speak to the answer, actually looking and examining our hearts and our stories and understanding what grace is, having that out in front of us, um, the only answer to why we're favored is love. God made us to share himself with us. He created us knowing we'd depart from him and and, be, and leave Eden and rebel and seek to become our own gods, to sit on the thrones of our own life, kicking them off that throne, um, to go the way of the devil. And Christmas is him, is him rushing out of the city of heaven into the small villages of the earth to become like us, to die in our place. That's what Luke 1, 39 to 45 is all about. It's about him. It's about the gospel ahead of time in figurative and even uh, symbolic language. And so, so see the Christ in Mary. Ask the question of Elizabeth. Be humbled. But that's, that, that is the thing that will bring you joy. Uh, again, if, um, as Christians or non-Christians, if we think we've done anything at all to turn the head of God, um, ours will be a life of despair. And pride and arrogance and condescension and comparison games um, but if we really understand that um, we bring nothing and yet we're still chosen and we're still loved, 
Um, and we see in, in Christmas not a moral teacher telling us how to get our life together, but one who would come to die in the most brutal of ways on a cross in our place to save us from hell itself. Like, um, and, and that by grace uh, changes everything. It, it changes everything. Uh, and from there is the life of joy. From there is the life of a little bit more, maybe freedom from anxiety and despair than we had before. Um, from there is a life of worship and a life of thanksgiving and a life of generosity, which, which of course, too, is what Christmas is, is all about. His generosity towards us that we might be freed to give to each other. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for, t- for today, for this Christmas day where we're reminded through the carols, through uh, communion, through each other, uh, through your word, especially in Luke 1, 39 to 45, where you speak to us and, and you tell us, and, and more so you show us here in almost parable form what the new era of faith will be like. And it will be, it will be an era of beauty. It will be an era of hastily running towards sinners when God would hastily run towards sinners out of the temple, out of the city of heaven, out of Jerusalem, to come down to our lives and to come our way. Um, and so we, I, I just thank you that Christmas and Christianity is not about meeting you halfway. That not only is that not the case of conversion, it's not the case with sanctification. It's also not the case with our Christian lives at all. It, it's, it is, we are the Elizabeth. We are Elizabeth. Uh, the gracious, favored loved receivers of the best news in the universe, that God became like those he was going to die for and save. Uh, In Christ we pray. Amen.